Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Welcome to the Lyft Next Economy podcast, and this is part of our cultural series. And I'm Phoenix Soleil, a partner co-owner at Lyft Economy, and we're an impact consulting firm where, where we want a business that can benefit all of life. And I'm very excited to have esteemed colleague here, Roxy Manning. Roxy is a certified NBC trainer and has been engaging with NBC for 21 years. And she has been teaching internationally on different issues of social change and racial justice. And I'm excited about her two books, How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations, Embracing Our Full Humanity to Challenge White Supremacy, and The Anti-Racist Heart, a Self-Compassion and Activist Handbook. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk with you again, Phoenix. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. And I guess it would start with, what are you excited about? What your The work that you're doing now? Maybe help mm. people who... I miss meeting you, get to know you a bit. Yeah. Um, well, I just got back from France, and there it was, like, this is the quintessential example of what I'm excited about. We did a training on power and privilege and looking at anti-racism for members of the French activists and NVC community. And one of the things that was so amazing was there were, I think, probably about 13 people from the global majority at this retreat. And at one point, I said, hey, I'd love to have lunch with you all. And they were flabbergasted. They were like, what? You're going to have lunch with us? Because it's still against the law in France to have gatherings that are just for people of one race. Like part of the way that France responded to World War II was to say, we're just not going to talk about race. Race doesn't exist. We're going to make it illegal. And so for these people who had never had an opportunity to sit with other people who had their lived experiences to meet to talk about it, to be authentic and real and not have to worry about, like, what would be the impact if someone hears us mourning the ways that we've experienced racism? People were in tears. It was one of the most beautiful experiences that I've been in. Oh, I'm so glad you got to experience that and give that to others. Yeah. It's so interesting, the things that we do to, with the intention <laughs> of healing or of, of justice and it can have the opposite impact. Yeah. And I think that's something like when I think about lift economy and helping support organizations, you know, that's one of the things that comes up a lot. Like, are we doing more harm if we talk about race or if we focus on it? And I'm always like, if you can't talk about it, if you can't assess it, then you can't measure it. Then you can't actually say, are inequities happening? And if I can't measure it, I can't fix it. And so this is a, definitely one of those examples of unintended consequences. Right. Yeah. And the difference between needs and strategies. Mm -hmm. Like you imagine the needs that are that they were trying to meet and then the strategies. For some of our listeners, they might not know what NVC, sorry for using it, I like to say nonviolent communication. And God, it's like my life has been <laughs> NVC for a long time. So it's like, how do I define it? Mm. <laughs> and it was like easy way. But what do you think would be supportive to say mm -hmm. to people who are just 
as an introductory. Yeah. And so you just mentioned the difference between needs versus strategies. And so even when I talk to people about what NVC is, the definition that I give depends on the needs that they are trying to meet. So if I'm going into a business organization, they're usually talking about communication and how to support making sure that everyone is able to get along and do the tasks Mm. that they got together. So for those folks, I'll say NVC is a way of understanding what's motivating every single person and finding a way to come up with strategies that work for everyone, that truly attend to the needs that people are trying to meet. And that's like a very functional definition. And then for other folks, like I know that you do a lot of meditation work, right? And so when I think about those folks, I also think about the bigger definition of what NVC is. And so for most people, I'll say NVC is what my friend Kit Miller says at the Gandhi Institute. And she describes NVC as a consciousness masquerading as a communication tool. And I think that really captures a lot of the essence of what NVC is. It's a consciousness that talks to us about how human beings are, like what's the story of human beings and how we relate to each other. And it's a communication tool in that it has these very concrete steps that we can use to help us access that consciousness. Exactly. So what I like to say is that we've all heard love your neighbor, but how do you actually do that? And so it's both the vision of that consciousness. And then it's also, here are some steps that you can take when you're thinking or approaching someone to help you stay in that consciousness. Exactly, exactly. I love this idea of loving your neighbor. I often talk about nonviolent communication, helping us build the beloved community that Dr. King and yes. others have spoken about. Yeah. Yeah. And when you were talking about having BIPOC, the people of the global majority sitting together and talking, I was also thinking about a time that I did this for a community and it was actually teenagers and it was only a few percentage, something like 15% of the community who were BIPOC and thought it would be good to have a group. And then what happened is that two of the people, when we started talking, were like, I'm so angry that we're having this group. Why are we with the others? And this is, and then, and then throughout the conversation and getting to talk, they were, they were like, you know what? We would never have gone this deep mm-hmm. if there were white people present. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it seems like a paradox, but it makes sense that people who have lived that experience can go deeper. But I also thought it was interesting that even though they all were people who've lived that experience in America of, of being a person of color, even within them, there was this different ideas of what inclusion means. And I was wondering if you could speak to that in your experience when you're talking with other people of BIPOC or organizing. Yeah, well, it kind of comes down to needs again, like we're going to keep talking about needs. And so every time we get a group together, people are in that group for different needs, and they've had different strategies that work for them. And so when I think about the people who are saying, why aren't we meeting with the other white folks, right? Like, why do we need to be on our own? Mm. I could imagine so many different experiences that they've had that are contributing to that. And sometimes when I'm working with global majority folks, some of it is like, even though I'm a global majority person, we're not a monolith. And I haven't yet found my home in the global majority community. Sometimes some global majority people feel more at home in my communities, partly because of their lived experience, because of the ways that whatever specific unique characteristics they have are better accepted in white communities than in global majority communities. And so 
our global majority identity is just one part of us. And some people might still feel more comfortable and have a deeper sense of resonance in some white communities than the global majority communities. So that's one thing I always want to remind people, we're not a monolith. We're not all going to be the same, not all have the same experiences. And then another thing that often comes up for people is, okay, so let's say that I am with my global majority folks. So many of us have internalized, in some ways like this, one of the the messages of white supremacy, that there's not enough to go around. And so even Mm. though I'm with you, I see you as my competition. If white supremacy means we're only going to have access to, like only one of us will get hired, quote, because of affirmative action, well, then it's got to be me and you're my competition. And so there's been a way that we've been pitted against each other, both as groups, you know, like Asians are pitted against African-Americans are pitted against Latinx folks, that we're always seen as we're scrabbling for the same small piece of the pie, And we don't yet have the vision to say, wait a second, we don't have to settle for the scraps. We can actually say, let's work together and have the whole pie and share it with everybody. So I think there's so many different challenges that lead us to think maybe my safety or my belonging or my opportunities will be if I'm away from the global majority group and working with white folks. Yeah. And then what I've noticed is that there's also this, one of the things that happens is that the the system there's so much pressure for time and there's so much pressure to succeed and survive that having the intimacy with yourself that you can even name that. Because some people might be just working from habit and not even realize that this is why they're acting. Mm-hmm. You nodded. So I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's the kind of self-reflection that we need to do to yeah. slow down and kind of step off that hamster wheel takes a lot of work. And without it, it's easier and in some ways more productive to just keep, like if I'm going to try to get that promotion, it's easier for me to keep doing the thing that I've been told is going to get me that promotion, right? The kind of acquiescing to all sorts of indignities in some ways or all sorts of unreasonable demands rather than taking the step back and thinking, is this actually serving me? Is this creating the long-term life that I want, not just a short-term achievement? And if not, how do I change it in a way that continues to let me get what I want, but in a way that's more holistic and supportive? And if you don't have the time to do that reflection, then the best thing to do is to just stay on that hamster wheel. And that's such a shame that so many of us feel trapped in that way. Yeah. When I teach, I also say that whenever you have a tension, there's an unseen entity called capitalism and (laughs) our system that's there. Because I remember Mm -hmm. having an issue with a colleague. I was also in a move and I was just like, I can't find a half an hour to use all the skills that I need to use to help me process some of the the pain that I was in because I knew Mm -hmm. that some of the pain was not about them. And, but then you need that space to do that inquiry for, with yourself. And when you have this rush, rush, and then you have this world where you didn't learn those skills, it's really asking a lot for people to be able to do that kind of self-reflection. Yes. And I love this piece that you named that sometimes when we're having conflicts with our colleagues, it's not even about them, right? It's like they're the stimulus, they're the top of the iceberg. But in order to actually attend to the conflict, we need to slow down and we need to understand what's true for us. You know, where's this actually coming from? What are the stories I'm telling myself that's keeping this going that in some ways is independent of that person? So yeah, capitalism is really about what can I produce and not what can I do to help people And also, have you seen the the intellectual, because sometimes someone can get something intellectually, like I knew intellectually, this is not just about them, but you still have to go through the process. You can't just skip to 
mm-hmm. all right, I'm good now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, what I do want to say, though, is that for me, there's a spectrum, right? So the first part of the spectrum is when I'm thinking it's a hundred percent about them. It's their fault. And then yeah. that's its own kind of problem. The next level is when I recognize this isn't actually really about them, but I'm not sure what it's about. And so I keep trying to engage with that person to figure out what it's about. And then I can go to, well, maybe this is actually about me. It's not about them. And in that case, even if I don't have the time to do the work, I can at least stop the harm that I'm doing, right? I can say, you know what? Us having more conversation isn't going to be productive, and I don't have the time right now to figure out what's going on, but let's just put a pause here so that we don't do more harm until we can create that time. And speaking about harm, being able to, say, see yourself as an actor creating harm, I think that's one of the Mm -hmm. great gifts that I've gotten from nonviolent communication is to be able to have compassion for myself. And of course, I still Mm -hmm. need more. (laughs) And I feel like that's also sometimes the tension I find when I'm trying to come from that consciousness when I'm with other activists, especially people of color, because there's been so much pain in our communities. And sometimes it's saying that's wrong and having that unity of that's wrong and that person is evil. Sometimes it's about venting. Sometimes it's about feeling like you have someone has your back and it's like trying to do things differently. Mm, Yeah. This piece that you're naming, it's so subtle, right? Because we often talk about the difference between moralistic judgments, which is, you know, kind of coming out of that capitalist white supremacy mindset and having needs-based judgment. And so whenever I'm talking to somebody who's in that kind of moralistic, I just need to know you get it, that you're thinking that this is wrong, that this shouldn't have happened to me. I invite myself, like even if they can't hold it that way, I invite myself to connect to what are the needs that are not met for this person? What's painful for this person? What are they struggling with? And then I can express my outrage and my my support for them from that place of need space. So even if they're saying that person is evil, I can say, gosh, it's got to be so hard when that person does something that prevents you or prevents your child from having access to the resources that they want. So I can flip that dialogue and still be in a place of supporting them, acknowledging the harm that they're experiencing without making it about that other person being evil, right? So this is part of that integration of NVC, that if I can hold on to even that person who did that thing that was hard, was trying to meet a need, then I can connect to the pain of having that strategy without having to judge that person as evil. And I'll say a bit more, though, because one of the challenges that I hear you speaking to is how do I support the person who's locked into that, I need you to know that that person is evil and bad without either, what's the word that I want, dismissing their concerns or with then kind of doubling down in this like toxic judgment that's actually not going to create change, right? So it's like, I need to be able to acknowledge and support them and and validate their experiences without continuing the things that I think are actually causing the harm, the kind of moralistic us versus them kinds of judgments. And that's a really fine line to walk yeah, there, but it's it possible. Yeah, it is one. I, and I've fallen off quite a few times. Of- <laughs> <laughs> we all have. <laughs> if I So I'm going to pretend that I'm, I'm one of those people I was like, what am I going to get out of not judging them? I don't want to engage. I'm tired. Mm -hmm. Why would I want to hold them with compassion? So what I often tell people is, I actually, 
and not so much concerned about the other person yet, right? What I often know is that people who I work with, whether it's in an organization, whether it's one-on-one coaching, they struggle with judging themselves. They're always beating themselves up. They've learned how to beat themselves up as a way to motivate change. And so every single time I judge another person, I'm practicing the skills I need to judge myself. Every single time I say, oh my gosh, that person who didn't turn in the report on time, they're a lazy jerk. Then when I don't turn in that report on time, I use that same language towards myself. So at minimum, my finding a way not to judge that other person gives me practice on how to hold myself with more compassion in a way that I only, it's like sometimes easier not to judge that person than it is not to judge myself. So if that's your entry point, do that. It's like practice not judging that person so you can stop judging yourself. And then, you know, if that doesn't sell it for you, I also think... I also think there's a huge benefit in not judging other people because it's what you said earlier. Capitalism, white supremacy, it's not about benefiting us. It's not about benefiting me, you, and the folks. You know, we're all in this together. We're all suffering from what capitalism and white supremacy has done to us. And every time I do that kind of judging other people, I'm actually putting a little bit of mortar on that wall that's shoring up the practices of white supremacy. That's saying that somebody's value is only in what they produce or what I can get out of them, rather than in trying to understand What's actually motivating this person and how could we make it work for both of us? And so for me, the people who are activists, if I want to dismantle white supremacy, if I want to dismantle capitalism, then I need to find a way to start being relational rather than transactional. And being relational means I'm not looking at judging you in terms of your badness or your evilness. I'm actually looking to say, is this actually working for you? And is this working for us? And how could we make it work better? I love the idea of creating an ad. Why compassion? Um, <laughs> and these are all the good reasons. Yeah. But I think there's some assumptions because we're, we both have been studying this world. So I'm always thinking about someone, the people I grew up with and the people in my family. Mm-hmm. Because you said we're all in this. Well, some people have it a, a lot easier. And when you said that we're all mm-hmm. hurting on the surface, it looks like some people are doing really well. It's benefiting them and it's saving them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, saving. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think, so there are different levels of hurt, right? So I just want to first, like, there's so many different places I can respond to this. There, absolutely, I want to be real, be acknowledging that the kind of hurt I'm feeling, if I can't put food on the table and house my family, is really different than the kind of hurt I'm feeling if I've got a nice, comfortable house and I never have to worry about paying the rent, right? So we're talking about not different, not comparing it as in my pain is worse than yours, but just that there are different levels of almost like existential crises that some of us are dealing with. And I want to acknowledge that. So... Yes, some people are more impacted in many different ways by the systems that we've inherited than others, because those systems were designed to benefit some people over others. So, of course, some people are going to have more impact, more harm. And at the same time, I believe that we're all just a tiny little there but for the grace of God go I moment from being on the opposite end of that scale, right? There's so many stories of white folks, of people who were rich, you know, even things like in the United States, at least, somebody who had a ton of money, a great job, and all of a sudden they got cancer. And it wiped out their savings because we live in a capitalist society that doesn't say, how do we take care of the person who's suffering? 
So they're now, they've like mortgaged their house, they've sold everything, they're living on the street, trying to take care of this family member with cancer. We're all just a moment away from these kinds of issues. And so when I think it doesn't hurt me because right now I'm comfortable, I don't have the long view in mind. I'm not thinking about all of the other ways that I'm actually kind of on the edge. The other part related to this that I think is often goes unseen is the ways, like when I talk about harm, some of the harm is around, again, this existential piece, but some of the harm is around what I was talking about before, the kind of judgments that we have of each other. I had a couple of clients over these years who have been incredibly wealthy, right? People who got stock in Apple before Apple, you know, became public, right? So people who are like multi, 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 multi millionaires. And they were my clients because they were suffering. They were my clients because they had internalized the idea that they are never enough, they will never be good enough, that there's something inherently flawed with them, and that their only value is what they can produce. And that kind of mindset hurts all of us. It makes all of us, make it, makes it possible for us to dehumanize each other and dehumanize ourselves. And that's a problem. That sets up the conditions where if that person with a lot of money can't see their own humanity and can't see mine, then they have absolutely no reason to want to change the conditions that I'm experiencing where I don't have money or food on the table. So I don't like the trickle-down effect kind of mindset, but it's all interconnected. I can't only save myself and not save another person. I can't only change the consciousness around we all have value and not say that the person who has all the resources also has value. It's all, yeah. it's all connected. Um, and I, I spent some time in Europe and I was very curious to meet people doing racial justice work there. And in America, at least in some of the communities I, I run in, it's almost a popular thing for white people to be doing ally work or racial justice work. It's like, but in Europe, it's very new, at least in 20, 2019 when I was there. And so I, I was like, so what motivated you to do this? Because you're kind of going really against the grain. And what I kept hearing again and again is that, oh my God, I got a different level of vitality. I was, I felt that I could see more of the world. It opened my eyes. I felt more connected. I felt some more wholeness. And that's despite that sometimes it meant that they felt also separated from people who didn't understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's hard doing this work because if you're really committed to it, if you're really going for that consciousness part of it, there are a lot of people who have been indoctrinated into these other viewpoints and who will not understand it. You know, I hear people tell me, you're naive, <laughs> you know, this is like too altruism, it's just kind mm. of, it's not real. And they just don't get it why I think all of our hope lies yes, in beloved community. Yes. And to think about it, to think that just because someone's rich is happy, is a little bit about materialism. It's what we're sold. Mm -hmm. Get more, you'll feel better. Absolutely. But it is a lot of work because sometimes you're trying to do this work towards someone who's holding these a projection, a stereotype against you. So it's this very, it's like, to me, like a martial art. Like, how do I, <laughs> yeah, how do I love myself? This person is constantly giving me microaggressions and still hold their humanity. How can I do that without feeling like I'm throwing myself out of the bus? And I feel like I, I find those ways and I'm curious how you work with that or work with that with your clients. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
in some ways, this is part of why I wrote the books, right? Because in order to be able to deal with the kind of constant onslaught that some of us experience around like microaggressions and not being seen for who we are and what we contribute, we need to have the most excruciatingly strong self-compassion practice. I need to almost, like, I think almost of my self-compassion as this, like, magic field. And whatever you throw at me, it's going to, like, hit that field and get transformed. And then I can take whatever messages you're sending me and actually pick it apart, tease it apart, and then transform it so it becomes, ah, I see that this is not about me. This is about your uncertainty, your fear, whatever's going on for you. And it helps to buffer me. It helps to protect me from taking on some of these messages. Before I developed this practice, I used to believe those things were true, right? I used to think like, are they saying it because there's something wrong with me? You know, and even when I had to question it, it became effort, it became work and energy, just always, always dismantling it. And now that's happening a lot more automatically. It's like, I hear these messages and I don't even have to think, is this really about me? I start to immediately be curious, what's going on for that person that they would say that, right? What's going on in their life? What needs are they trying to meet? That's a really sad strategy, but I'm so curious what's going on for them. And it helps to inoculate me from having to deal with some of that stuff. So that's one thing that I find really helpful, that my self-compassion practice, again, going back to that, why do you do that work? Because it helps protect me. It helps me. Like not seeing you as evil, then I don't have to walk through the world afraid of people. Like there are all these evil people out there, so I've got to be on guard. It's like, no, there are all these people with these really flawed strategies, and I don't have to get caught up into that. And that's it, it relieves me from a little bit of burden. The other thing that I'll say is, Part of the other reason I wrote the book is I wanted people to have these conversations. And so being able to tell that person, like, could we pause for a moment? You know, I know that you hired me to talk to your company about, you know, how to give feedback. But one of the things I'm noticing is the kind of feedback you're giving me right now isn't actually grounded in some observations about what I'm doing. I'm hearing a lot of assumptions there. So could we take a moment to look at that? So being able to have those kinds of like real bold (laughs) and authentic conversations with people is one of the ways we deal with it, that I don't have to be afraid to say these things and to name them. And I can do it in a way that's not judging the person, but raising awareness. Yeah. And I've seen that. That's why I do this work. And that's why I encourage the people work to do it is that you start to see change. You start to be able to do this more easily Mm -hmm. and automatically so that it does feel like a force field. And what I really want is that people don't have to do that and that it's Mm-hmm. We don't ask that. You shouldn't live in a society where you're getting that all the time. And that's why we're also at the same time. Exactly. It doesn't mean that you become a doormat. You're, In fact, you become more able to speak because I find that if I have compassion for someone, then I'm actually more likely to say something than if I don't. Because if I don't, I'm in mm-hmm. that condemn mode. And if I've condemned someone, if I really think they're completely unsalvable, I don't try. Mm. I love that, Phoenix, because I tell people that all the time. Whenever I work with organizations on microaggressions, I'm always like, you know, if I call you out, no matter how intensely, harshly I do it, I'm actually telling you there's still a chance for connection. Because when I don't care, when I have lost all trust or faith in you, I walk away. And I'll walk away with a smile on my face because I'm like, I'm done with you. I don't need to deal with this anymore. And you think everything's okay, but I've actually given up. So the fact that I'm saying anything at all means I'm still engaging 
in some tiny little place, there's a little door open. And the way that you respond to that door being open is what's going to impact how we move forward from now on. So helping people to see that, that the more compassion I have for you, the more likely I am to engage. But even if I can't fully find it, just me speaking up is an invitation saying there's still something salvageable here. You know, do your part now, step up. And do you know what I find is very helpful for being able to have conversations is to do work where I have privilege. Because being able to see those blind spots and see where, oh, wow, I, or I see myself, I just said that thing, the person had a reaction and I'm like, I think what I said, and then I think, oh my God, I've just done it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I know there are times when Especially like this idea of like, you know, at the very beginning, you started talking about like being in global majority only communities, right? And why some people don't want to be, even though they're of the global majority, they don't want to be in a global majority group. And it's partly of that, right? That we all have different levels of privilege, even though we share this one identity. So when I'm in a group, I've got a ton of education privilege and it can completely obscure to me the ways that I use that privilege, that way of interacting and almost the respect that people give me just because I've got those letters after my name. I can completely ignore that and almost run roughshod over someone. So being in communities where I pay attention to how all the different aspects of privilege I have is showing up and how hard it is for me to acknowledge when I've done harm from that place of privilege gives me a lot of compassion when I'm working with other folks outside the global majority who are struggling with, how do I show up? How do I respond? How do I make amends, right? So the more that we acknowledge our own privilege and work on it, the more we can actually have the kinds of connections outside of our communities if we want. And then when I I think about global majority groups, I think about how I would have more attention on the ways that we can hurt each other. Because I feel like the harm that people receive when they experience it from someone else that they were expecting was going to be with them and Mm -hmm. a supporter, it's so deep. And mm-hmm. how do you, and then sometimes people repress calling someone out or calling someone in because they don't want to lose that connection. Yeah. Right. Or this idea that we need to be united in yes. front of the oppressor, right? So it's like, even though you're hurting me, I need to put up with it because we can't let anybody yeah. else see our yeah, business. Definitely. Mm-hmm. This is one of the places that I think we have to be able to look inward, not just outward. Like our communities, you know, you're a black woman like me. So our communities, Our salvation, our liberation is not just by making white people do something differently. It's also that we have to learn and recognize where we've internalized some of these patterns and where we're applying them against each other. And we need to like, every time I look down on, well, that person didn't finish high school or that person is unhoused or that person is wearing their bags, their pants down behind their butt, right? Like all of these things that we say to ourselves unconsciously are ways that we're continuing to create divide and us versus them better than worse than in our communities. And so we have to look inside our communities for the places where we're perpetuating harm, in addition to looking outside of our communities for places where change yeah, needs to happen. And we need radical self-compassion for those places. Because it's so, mm-hmm. I think, the right, wrong, the punitive nature of our culture encourages us to want to turn away, to justify it, to minimize it. And actually, the more you can have space uh, for it, the more you can engage and say, oh, I, I did that. 
it hurts someone and I can still see myself as valuable because I was taught that the way to be a good person is to beat yourself up. Yes. That that's the only thing that will make you change, right? Like you yes. can't grow if you don't beat yourself up and punish yourself. Yeah. 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 And that's part of what I mean when I say that if we are always punishing the other when they do something to us, we're reinforcing that message that we have to punish ourselves in order to motivate our own change. That's problematic. Can you tell me about some of the work you've done healing relationships within the global majority communities? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so, so many. One of my most favorite, and it's still like it touches me to this day, it's been probably about seven maybe even longer. It's been a number of years now. I went to Rochester and I was going to do a weekend workshop. So Friday and Saturday was only with global majority women and primarily black women. And then Sunday was going to be integrated with black women and white women. And the intention of the workshop was we wanted to help this community of black and white women who wanted to work for racial justice, we wanted to help them come together and work together more effectively. But thank goodness we had the insight that we could not start by having dialogues just between the black and white women, that we needed to have most of the time be focused on looking at the black community and looking within ourselves. And so we had a day and a half of incredible, deep healing and and sharing about the ways we've been impacting each other's. We talked about things from colorism to educational bias to all of the ways that people did not feel seen by each other, did not feel valued inside within the Black community, and created opportunities for people to name their pain and then to reflect, to have it reflected back, not to have it dismissed, not to be told you can't talk about that, but to really be received fully for what they were experiencing And then to talk about what are some of the requests that we want to make of each other going forward, and what are some of the requests we want to make of the white woman when we met them. And then when we met the white woman, it was just the most beautiful, beautiful conversation. And to this day, I think it's, like I said, I think it's been about seven years since that happened. That group of women are still meeting, the group of black women. They have gotten together and they are tight, and they have been dealing with a lot of pain in their community around murders of Black children, like, I mean, so many things have happened in that community, and they have bonded in part because of the work that they do. They still tell me that that work was meaningful. Yes. As a Black woman, I mean, I felt chills because, yeah, I mean, the the, the pressure to be a strong Black woman, mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful example mm-hmm. of when you are able to talk about the conflict, because I think sometimes we think, oh, I love you, I'm going to let it go. And then you let it go and then it builds and then it explodes and then there's drama or sometimes there's just silence and it's cold. But when you get to talk about and actually heal, that's a much deeper relationship because then you know that person is someone who can hear my truth and won't walk away. Absolutely. Every time we walk away, I think of us putting a little like chip, you know, like a wall becoming more and more porous. So it looks like the wall is there. But if you get enough of those chips, the minute there's a blow, that wall shatters. And so I want to actually be able to attend to every time there's a chip to to heal it, to fill it up, make sure that we infuse it with this deep trust and connection that we have. We're gonna we're in this together. We're gonna work together. So beautiful work. And how have you handled microaggressions between people of the global majority? It's really just slowing down, right? It's slowing down. Handling microaggressions within our community is the same as handling it, handling it without. It's inviting people to like pause, notice what's happening, 
choose, like, do I want to have this conversation right now? And I always tell people that just because it's a microaggression, just because it happened, doesn't actually mean I have to have this conversation, but I want it to be a choice. Because many of us, like you said, are in the habit of not having that conversation because we got to, you know, go along to get along. But sometimes I might choose not to have this conversation because the risk is too great. The potential for further harm is too great. You know, if I'm talking to my supervisor who has the potential to fire me and I know that they've held grudges, there's a reason I might choose not to have this conversation in this moment and to find other strategies for self-care. So I'm always asking people to check in. What's the reason you want to have this conversation? And then when you want to have it, be really clear. Like, what's the thing that happened? And then what's the meaning you took from it? And have that conversation with the person. And I'm really big on asking people, like, you know, you start to have these conversations and all of a sudden they said, no, no, you didn't understand me. This is what I meant. And I'm always saying, you know, I totally can understand what you meant, but what I want you to hear and reflect back is how it landed in me, which is different than how you meant it. So could you hear that for a moment? And slowing that that conversation enough until you feel heard. So it's it's yeah. exactly the same process. And that requires so much self-love. Mm-hmm. Self-love, and in some ways, it requires a lot of hope. Yeah. I always think, you know, people are like, this work is hard. And I'm like, yeah, you can't do this work if you don't have hope that you can actually make an impact, that things can be better. And so when we feel hopeless, we can't do right. this work. We give up. We think yeah. it's always going to be and the same. And then what's sad is that then my experience when I'm in those spaces is that I'm bitter. I'm. It's harder inside. Mm -hmm. What actually gives you hope of doing this work? It's that piece around self-reflection that you said mm -hmm. at the beginning. So my biggest hope, my biggest inspiration comes from seeing the person I am now and the person I was 21 years ago when mm -hmm. I started this, right? 21 years ago when I started this, I would never be on a podcast. <laughs> I used to, I remember like in 2008, so even a number of years after I started, I was teaching and somebody had invited me to teach with them and I would sit next to this person and every time I wanted to say something, I would whisper it in their ears because I couldn't <laughs> oh say it. Oh my God. And they would say, stop it, speak to the whole group. I can't believe it. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, people still remind me of that. And that was me, you know, I don't know how many years ago. And I have changed. I have found my voice. I have found, like writing this book, anybody who reads this book, and I have anti-racist conversations, will read my story about like why I didn't write for so long. And so my hope is in, I can change. I can be a different person, a more liberated, free, and empowered person than I was. And if I can do it, given where I was, anybody can do it. And then I hear the stories from people who come back to me and tell me things are better. We're still meeting, you know, seven years later. We're still having an impact in our community. That gives me hope. Yeah. And I want to say again, the, the name, the titles of the books, How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations by Roxy Manning, PhD, and The Anti-Racist Heart, which is the self-compassion and activism handbook. And I'm really excited about this because a lot of times you have books and they're like, this is what you do. And this, and a handbook means, hey, we're going to help you do this. <laughs> I'm going to give you some mm -hmm. hand-holding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are so many exercises and journalings and invitations in that book that if anybody went through all of it, like I've had people tell me, I've done a lot of books, I've done a lot of work, and this rocked my world. Yeah. Even my editor, like I was so moved. My editor, can I tell you two okay. stories that made me so proud? <laughs> It kind of gives me hope. My editor, when he read the books after I submitted them, he said, 
I was crying. You made me think of things from like 50 years ago that helped me understand the ways that I had shown up that was racist and like kind of recommit to wanting to change. And this is somebody who does a lot of work in this field, right? So I was super excited by that. And then the other thing that happened that gave me so, so, so much hope that these books would have an impact, we hired a narrator, Carolyn Michelle Smith, who's this like amazing actress, to be the narrator for How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations. And usually like you hire the narrator, you never talk to the person, right? It's like they read the books, they go away. She tracked me down. She found me on Instagram and wrote me and said, I never do this. I've narrated a bunch of books. I've never reached out to an author, but I had to reach out to you because I found myself stopping as I was doing this narration and having conversations with my white male audio engineer about what we were because it was so moving and it was really transformative. And I had the most delightful connection with her from somebody, again, who does this work professionally and still found benefit in reading the book. I feel really proud. And it's so interesting to be able to say that because that's not something we get to say as Black women, right? But I feel proud that I did something that is actually having the impact I was hoping it would have. You go, girl. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I I wanted also to your website so that people can find out about your trainings because you do them all over the world. Yeah. So the website to find out about my trainings is roxannemanning.com. And then the website to find out about the book and my podcast is antiracistconversations.com. And either one will get you to the other. So just pick one and go to it. Okay, well, I could talk with you for a lot longer, but <laughs> I'm really. Is, are there any other thoughts before we go? No, I think what I'm taking away from our conversation that I really hope your listeners are taking away is that change is possible, right? That they can actually show up and do this work and have the conversations they need to have, and that they will grow just from trying. I'm leaving an inspired and recommitted to, okay. This is important work and mm. yeah, and it does make a difference. Thank you, Phoenix. Next Economy Now is a production of Lift Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.